Hey, engine professionals, machinists, and enthusiasts, welcome to the Engine Professional Podcast. Hey, listeners, welcome back to another edition of the Engine Professional Podcast. My name is Steve Fox. I'm here with my co-host, Chuck Lynch. Chuck, it's been a while. We've been a little busy, but how you doing? I'm doing well, Steve. And yeah, busy's the word. <laughs> yeah, it's been crazy the last couple months with the trade shows going on and traveling and um, people out of the office and taking time to spend with their families and uh, just had a scheduling conflict trying to get things uh, organized to get this podcast done. But we are back. Uh, we are here for the long haul, as they say. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, again, schedule's been crazy, and with a hundred year anniversary, um, but just a lot of things heaped up. So, yeah. Speaking of that, uh, I guess before we get going, I hope everybody had a great holidays and wish everybody a happy new year. Hope twenty twenty three is a good year for everybody. And kind of recap the shows that we were at. We were at the Las Vegas uh, SEMA Apex shows. Uh, Chuck and I did the Vegas um, SEMA show, and I thought the show was uh, pretty good attended, uh, not too bad. I thought the um, more people than there was the year before. Right. I think, you know, the, the toe in the water thing was last year. You know, I mean, we went, there There was some traffic. It was a decent show. Um, but this year, yeah, definitely it was you know, back to business. I think they shook the things up at Apex a bit and and uh, it's got some, you know, kind of mixed signals from what we heard. We didn't work the show, but um, definitely seemed, seemed to be business as usual. Yeah. <clears throat> then after that was the PRI party, which is a, a big show for everybody in our industry. That's kind of the, the main show for the engine builders. Uh, that was a... I thought it was, I thought the quality of the people were a lot better this year than it has been in the past. I believe so. I think, you know, when, when they start charging, um, the registration fee and, and so forth, um, you probably deter the people that are like, well, it's just a novelty thing. I'm going to walk in and see what it's like. Or if I have to pay some money to, to get in there and I have to show some proof of credentials and so forth. It's a little deterrence. I mean, money-wise, I mean, if you're in the business, uh, you know, <laughs> you made the comment about, hey, that's that's a small portion of a drinking bill one night, you know. <laughs> so, I mean, don't let that hold you back. But uh. Right. Yeah, the booth was busy. Uh, we saw a lot of members uh, signed up, some new members. Um, we had our engine uh, giveaway for the EREF. And congratulations to, I believe his name was Steve Feinstein. Yeah, Steve Feinstein. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He won the Flathead Ford that we gave away at the PRI show. And then, like you stated earlier, Chuck, it's our 100th year last year. So we had a big bang at the party. Uh, we gave away a bunch of uh, some cash prizes, some show bucks. Uh, and our very own Jim Rickoff. Uh, AERA president uh, received the Charles Yount Award. So that was all pretty exciting there at the party. Yeah, it was a great party. I was really pleasantly surprised that we actually had to run people off because they were wanting to set the room up for something else. I mean, people stuck around. They enjoyed each other's company, made new friends. Um, it, it was great. It was funny. There's a guy that I know now he only lives like seven miles from me and a friend from North Carolina introduced me to him. It's just crazy about this industry, you know? <laughs> yeah. We opened the doors to that party and those people started coming in. I was like, Holy smokes. This is a lot of people coming in here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I got a lot of good feedback that people were very happy with the, the turnout and totally surprised by the volume of people there. And again, who stuck around and, so, yeah, it's uh, people were looking for that. Yeah. yeah, it was a good time for sure. Good time for sure. And it was nice. We were 
Chuck and I were in the booth. We had a couple people come by and compliment us on the podcast. They were super excited to to meet us, uh, which was nice. Uh, took a couple photos, and uh, as some people say, we're infamous. <laughs> That's a good way to put it, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll get rolling into uh, some of the meat and potatoes here. Today's, uh, this month's episode of the podcast, we're talking about warranties, engine warranties. Uh, but before we get into that, we're going to give you a little bit of history that we found for the month of January. Uh, on January 6th of 1930, the first diesel engine road trip was completed. And to promote the diesel engine, Cummins Engine Company owner Clessy Cummins mounted a diesel engine in a used Packard touring car and set out for the National Automobile Show in America's first diesel-powered automobile in January of 1930. The 800-mile trip from Indianapolis to New York City used 30 gallons of fuel, which cost a total of $1.38 and showed that diesel was a viable option as an internal combustion engine. It was the first of many diesel-powered driving feats Cummins would attempt, and it established his company as an engine supplier that would lead to success in the trucking industry. In 1935, Cummins drove the diesel-powered Auburn from New York to San Francisco on $7.62 worth of fuel. You know, given fuel prices at that time, that's still, that's absolutely amazing. You know, if it costs $30 to fill it up in New York, you know, I mean, that's just, it's crazy. But, you know, the we're squeezing much power out of the diesels now. I mean, the fuel efficiencies are are different but that used to be their thing right <laughs> i mean oh that engine's got a or that car has a diesel engine it'll get 50 miles a gallon uh little volkswagens and so forth and that was 40 years ago right so mm -hmm. i just when i was reading those numbers i was like seven dollars and 62 cents across the country I can't even get to work on seven dollars and sixty-two cents now, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm only fifteen or seven miles from here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <clears throat> it's crazy what it is today. Yeah, it's so volatile. I think the crude oil barrel price is going back up. So, yeah, yep. we're along yep. for the ride. Exactly. Well, Chuck, let's get started here. We'll just jump right into our topic of uh, warranty rules to protect you and protect your customers. And I guess I'd probably start with, you know, we all kind of hear the word warranty, but do we really all know what it means? Yeah, it's so um, based on industry, product, and so forth, it can, it can be a pretty big gaping hole, right? But um Kind of as a rule, it's a written guarantee issued to the pur purchaser of any article um, by its manufacturer, promising to repair, replace it if necessary uh, within a you know specified period of time. Um, you know, warranty is not a profit center; it is typically <laughs> painful for both sides. Uh, we get a fair amount of calls about you know the the times to re R and R parts or whatever, because, um, everybody's looking for a standard, you know, mm -hmm. we look for dollars and cents for shop rates and they're also looking for dollars and cents on and warranty rates too, whether it's from the manufacturer, the engine builder, it's just, it's a, it's a not fun thing to manage. Uh, and that's the thing you need to manage it. Um, and set some standards around it, but it's not fun. And, you know, I think going back to it's not a profit center, you know, whoever had the failed part, they don't want to be paying the max rates and so forth. And you even look in like all data and Mitchell and whatnot, they have a different category for warranty replacement as opposed to a standard replacement. Mm -hmm. How does that work? I mean, we understand how it works, but it, <laughs> right. you know, it's just, it's another thing that it's, it's a, uh, a testy, testy subject. <laughs> well, and I think you said it 
at best too there. It's kind of, uh, typically it's painful for both sides. Um, obviously the, the consumer wants their engine to run and last forever and the machine shop doesn't want to see it again until it's ready to rebuild again. So if there is a failure, you know, you go through that process and, and try to get things fixed the best that they can, but it is a painful process once you begin it. Right. So, you know, if you're going to have warranties on, on your products, you also, you need to have reasonable times, um, for the coverage, right? I mean, you need to do due diligence and think about how long can it realistically last if I'm going to cover it, you know, those nothing lasts forever. And, uh, you don't want to get into those, a uh, gimmick sell product deals, especially in something as mechanical as a engine. I mean, as we've said before, Murphy lurks around every corner when there's something mechanical, there's too many interrelating parts. And so the, the gimmicky kind of things, you know, Oh, there's, we'll give you a warranty on this engine for its lifetime and infinity, you know, just have Buzz Lightyear bring it back to us. And you got to be careful about what you do. Um, you know, I, and I think people, people have probably learned, you know, the school of hard knocks is a good teacher. And you take a look at, was it like Daewoo, Daihatsu, one of the car companies many years ago, they were one of the early ones to come out with like a hundred thousand mile warranty. And, you know, somebody said they'll figure it out or they'll be gone. And that's what you have to kind of, Hey, if I do this, can I support it? Or will it make me go away? What's, mm-hmm. what's the risk of entering this type of warranty program? So just be realistic. You know, that's, that's what people want of you. Um, I remember having a deal. I won't mention the name of the, the, parts supplies, parts store, but you know, I bought a starter and it failed in a couple weeks. So yeah, I wasn't too upset. And then the replacement starter failed shortly after that. And I take it back and I'm like, I don't want a starter. I want my money. And they're like, we can't do that. You got a lifetime warranty on it. I said, that's the problem. I don't want to change the starter every 10 days for the rest of my life. <laughs> you know? So anyway, just, you know, think about that. Have some forethought. Yeah, and I guess there's really not a standard in our industry. You know, I've seen 12 months, 12,000 or 24, 24, 36, 36. You know, you kind of see them all out there. But um, I I guess there really isn't a standard. You know, it's really up to you on how long you want to warranty that that engine. Right. I guess – your, do we call them our associates, you know, that are going to be involved in it. Okay. Can I say that I'm going to warranty this thing for no seal leaks, no gasket leaks or whatever for three years. And then the gasket supplier says, we don't guarantee them at all. Okay. So that leaves you holding all of the risk. So you have to evaluate that. Um, you know, have rules stick to them. Um, and documentation is best. Um, if you don't have the rules, you know, people talk, it's that whole, if you make somebody happy, they tell one or two people you do somebody, you make them mad and they tell 70 people how screwed up you are. So, I mean, if you have documented processes and rules, um, you know, do what you say, say what you do, and if that just that clears up a lot of it. You, you know, I, I recently took a call about uh, high performance engines. You know, somebody they want to take the engine out and race it on Saturday night, and they think it should be covered like their street driven, you know, yeah. delivery truck engine. And uh, again, you know, you have to set some rules to stick to them. Hey, I guarantee it to start once. Once you start adjusting timing and carburetor injection and so forth, you just nullified what I did. That's mm-hmm. on you now. And, uh, you know, so have that written and documented because if you don't, 
well, now you open yourself up to to that. And with the internet and social media and being able to throw every, everything out there for the world to see, you know, if you have something that you could put up on your Facebook page or website or however you reach people, okay, this is how we play. Then, you know, you set, you kind of set yourself up in a better light. Hey, you were told that we don't warranty race engines. So don't go online and tell everybody that, you know, they're bums because they don't warranty race engines. So, yeah, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother animal over there that doing those performance guys. And, and we dealt with them a lot in the shop I worked in. And it is a, a tough animal, you know, like people ask, you know, well, what's your warranty on that? Oh, six seconds or six feet, whichever comes first. You know, it's one of those deals. <laughs> like mm-hmm. it's, it, it, once you put it in there and start beating on it, it, it's a tough thing to deal with. Why? So on that topic, Steve, did you ever do like lease engines? And I'm sure that that's a, that's a different animal. Do you, are most lease engines sealed? Most lease engines usually are. Uh, we never had one. We never dealt with anything like that. Uh, but most of the lease engines that I've heard of, um, like some of the pro stock guys I'll use, for example, and that's kind of extreme. Um, you know, some of our members could probably chime in a little bit on this a little better and, and give some of their thoughts, but those engines are leased by somebody and that individual is the only one that can come over and do anything to it, take a valve cover off, do anything like that. Uh, now that might've gotten a little looser here in the last couple of years. Um, but from what I've always understood is once you lease that engine, you, you're pretty much just the guy that can drive it and that's it. And I'm sure that's kind of the same in like a, a circle track world. Maybe not as, I don't know, you know, in the circle track world, I don't know uh, for sure, but I'm sure there's a bunch of lease programs out there for that stuff too. And some of those guys probably, they might be able to tweak some of the stuff um, externally, but doing anything in the engine, probably not. So on, on those, again, you know, have rules to stick to them. And then the customer is entitled to know what your warranty policy is. So again, if, you know, talking about the lease engines or whatever, they really, they're entitled to know, but above and beyond that, they really should know save yourself some headache. Okay. I've got this. Okay. So I did mention, have this when you can, where you can have it visible. So if you have a Facebook page, website, uh, LinkedIn, whatever, you know, you choose to use, put your base, basic warranty stuff. Of course, there's always custom situations that, that can arise. Maybe it's an engine platform you don't typically do and you got to figure the things out and you're working with maybe hey, I I got the local trash truck fleet or something. Now I got to figure some new things out. But, you know, your customer is entitled to know. Therefore, you're entitled to their installation process, the diagnostics, uh, complaint information, because you need to be able, you know, in in today's day and age, what do we say? Oh, we, we can't profile people. We can't vet. You know, that's just not. But you really need to, again, if you're going to sell to a particular fleet and, uh, you know, cause I have an example of, you know, a fleet of sweepers that were used on railway. Well, as they stir up all the dirt and rocks and stuff, when they run their big sweepers, well, they stop up their air cleaning systems. Well, technicians not really knowing, you know, that if I take that filter off that I'm going to dust the engine, well, they do those things. And then the, the engine builder looks like a bad guy. So again, you kind of need to know what your customer intends to do with it. And if it is an opportunity for a fleet or something, you, you might go see what they do. You might ask if you can get two or three of their engines, their failed engines to tear down so that you can assess what's kind of going on again you know, you're getting the, the dead body without the crime scene, but say if you do have a engine that ate a lot of dust cause they take filtration off because they don't like changing the filter every day or cleaning it, then, then you learn something from that. So I think you, you take that as an opportunity to help build that policy and so forth. 
Yeah, and I think you hit it hit a good point there, Chuck, on the warranty policy of letting them know what that is. And I, I'll just kind of throw my two cents here. It's it's not a one-page document, in my opinion. I mean, this is going to be a pretty, you need this to be pretty detailed and spelled out of what you're responsible for, what you're going to cover, um, what the uh, the shop rate is that you're willing to pay if there's a gasket failure or something like that. Um, kind of, I mean, spell everything out. I mean, this, <laughs> you don't want it to be the, the dictionary, uh, but, but it can't be just a one page article or one page document either. That's got four point type, you know, you got to be able to read it and understand what's being said and, and what you're, what everybody's responsible for. Yeah, that's a good point because <clears throat> litigation, you know, yep. Um, if you leave too many, too many open holes, you know, uh, I know I hear a lot of times when, uh, we take calls on the tech line about a particular process or procedure that's kind of not customary. It, it usually comes up. That's where we're going to have signed, dated and documented that there is no warranty for this. This was your idea. You, you recommended the process. You stood you stood behind a process, not the machine job. Yeah, and it's it's uh, like you said, no gray areas. Make sure there's no gray areas. You know, you got to either make it black or white. No gray. <laughs> Try to stay out of the gray area the best you can. Right. You made a good point there about um, you know the labor rates. We get we get that so much because of demographic. Um, mm-hmm. You know, geographically, demographically, that's a that's a real challenge for us, and we hear it from the part suppliers as well. Like it or not, your things are going to be handled differently in New York, Southern California than they are in Arkansas. The right the scale of economy just it impacts it. Mm-hmm. I, I know we don't like to hear those things, but that's that's the reality. You go out there and you pay seven dollars a gallon for gas when the Midwest is three fifty. It's you know the trickle down effect. So um, again, it you if you're someone who does mass merchandising and you move product all across the country, that's important. That doesn't impact most of the shops that uh, we're dealing with. That they don't they don't branch that far out. But you know where I came from. That was a reality. That's, mm-hmm. you know, we sold in the U.S., somewhat out of the U.S., and every state within the U.S. So, I mean, we were definitely impacted by that. But it's something you want to you want to consider, you know, if again, when you're vetting that customer, hey, can we be profitable at this? Um, and, you know, try to look at the, their product and, and what their expectations are in return. Just... Have an open dialogue. Yep. Dot your eyes, cross your exactly. T's. Exactly. So as an as an engine machinist, obviously it's in your best interest to have some kind of knowledge of how the modern engines are being diagnosed. Um, and I would say whether that's at a lot of our guys don't have the ability to do that. So it's actually going to be at another garage um, or, a, you know, maybe you as a machine shop deal with a certain garage that does engine installations and diagnostics. So just make sure that you get all the information that you can from that scan tool. Uh, that is a source of information. And you need to make sure that you're asking the questions that are not just yes, no questions. Like, was a leak down test done? What were the numbers? Um, you know, what percentage of the leak in per cylinder uh, in intake and exhaust or rings? Uh, was there a con- cranking compression done? And what were the results of that? Um, try to get as much documentation as you can on any of those tests that can help with the warranty situation. Right. And I'd say in addition to that um, is I know we're all busy. And that you hear the term, the work-life balance. Um, but if you're going to be running the machine shop today and 
what you're going to be faced with is people bringing you parts that are failed that you really should understand what the contributing factors are. So if you don't understand runnability, you can set yourself up to have the same failure again, right? So if the guy just lifts the intake manifold off and he's got a bad injector and I've got a burn valve, then he sets that same stuff back on it. The, the, you get these repeat failures. Um, we hear the cases like, you know, the, the dot seven Dodge engines with the valve seats dropping. Um, you know, you need to know something about that particular platform above and beyond. I mean, sure. We've got tech bulletins and so forth and, and that stuff's all great, but the more that you can actually spend some time on yourself, educating yourself about, you know, again, we get the dead body, but we don't get the crime scene. Educate mm -hmm. yourself about the crime scene, the car, you know, and some of those are a crime <laughs> in this day and age. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway, um, documentation well, and, and good data. Um, but if you don't understand the data, um, that, that can be a problem too. Uh, I have, we on this tech line have more and more runnability conversations all the time. Now, is that because as we've had these conversations, it sparks that interest and now they're coming to us for an education source or, you know, and, and that's fine. Um, but I'm just saying, Hey, just because you're an engine machine shop, um, you know, you might really consider, are there any study materials and stuff out there? Can I take an ASE test on um, engine performance? What's that going to do to me in this machine job? Um, I think that you might see things in a different light. Ooh, you know, I always say that once you know, you can't go back. It's like when you figure out the root cause to something, it's, oh man, how did I ever not deal with that issue before? Well, dumb luck goes away when you, mm -hmm. when you stepped over that threshold. Now I know better. But, you know, oftentimes I don't think that we knew the cause and effect relationship. And we probably had that failure multiple times. I've never seen that before. I've never seen that before because you didn't know what it looked like. You didn't know what it felt like. And now that, you know, all of a sudden, OK, again, dumb luck goes away. So, <laughs> so you know, just try to educate yourself and get the most data you possibly can when you're talking to the guy and, and part store stuff. We talk about that too. It's hard to get that information at times, but that's what you really need to do. You need to be persistent mm -hmm. or you might get a lot of boomerang work. And, uh, you know, last, last time I looked around, I don't think too many people were trying to knock kangaroos out in the U S with a boomerang. So that's, <laughs> that's not a strong business here. <laughs> Well, kind of just as, pop, as things pop in my mind, I kind of think about it. But we had one member one time who had a machine shop, and then he had an own his own installation center. And one of the requirements when he did the engine was to put a new water pump, new hoses, new thermostat. All that stuff was new. And if that was not done, it kind of voided his warranty, um, which I, I think is a pretty good idea to actually to know that you're getting good quality new part i mean you've got this new engine not new but rebuilt engines that's somewhat new um that you're putting in this vehicle and then you want to go put this old water pump on it or an old set of hoses or something like that that could cause an overheating issue and then who's going to be left holding the bag the machine shop so i just thought that was a neat thing to Hey, when we do this engine and we put it in this car, you're going to get new hoses. You're going to get new water pump. You're going to get new thermostat. You're going to get new everything. That way we know when it leaves here, it's done right. And it's going to work good. <clears throat> Absolutely. I, you know, and there are, I can name a few companies that, that do that. Even like the ground support equipment, you know, there's actually companies that exist to support uh, airports and so forth with the, the kind of that mentality in mind, okay, we're going to swap out an engine in this tug 
And mm-hmm. when we're going to do it, there's a company, there's Sage um, is the name of one or like Swiss tech or something of that nature. And, and they exist like close to airports and they have all of those components so that when they hit the ground, they hit the ground running <clears throat> times so valuable. And, and, and uh, you see that with the diesel world where you know, they buy running complete engines with all of those components on there. Um, it, it, it's challenging in the diesel world because the fuel and air system cost as much as the engine. Right. So, uh, you know, if, if, if we really take a look at it though, I have a worn out diesel engine. Why is it worn out other than in ingested dirt or something of that nature? It's probably because fuel and air is unhappy. Something's worn out there. So in turn starts to wear out the rings and the pistons. Okay, I got melted down pistons. Uh, the diesel stuff's really tough because of the cost of that. But they're usually the cause of that failure. A happy engine doesn't just die, right? Oh, well, I'm 80, so I'm just going to kick the bucket. It doesn't kind of work that way for the engines you know they're it's if if the things are happy mechanically and whatnot it's usually got to be something upsets that other than a, a you know a part deficiency but those aren't going to be the one to take out that engine that's a hundred thousand miles right it's a it's probably something it, it's a trickle down effect and uh so to your point um about the water pumps and hoses and stuff get a lot of miles on them. They're, they're probably tuckered out. <laughs> Just- yeah. It, to me, it's cheap insurance. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you've spent, let's say $5,000 on this engine and then you want to skimp on a, a $300 set or whatever it is, $400 set of a water pump and some hoses and, and stuff like that, that, I mean, it could die two hours down the road or, or last for two years, who knows, you know, but it's still, it's, it's one of those things that you don't want to have that problem when you, and I'm not saying, I mean, you could have problems with new, just like you said, with your starter, you know, it lasted 10 days and you got to get a new one. Uh, nothing's to guarantee that'll be any better, but at least in your mind, you think you've done the right thing. Right. Yeah. And, and if you, if you kind of standardize on that, again, it's about process, right? And, and we know that that's tough right now with parts, Ching's issues and whatnot and you know everybody that's listening i know sometimes there's probably a little bit of you know have you been out there right now i mean yeah we we hear what's going on but hey we also we have to focus on i mean we see these ups and downs uh in ebbs and flows and over time and uh you know so we got to try to speak to what's what's a good process when times are good as well. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, again, that some of these things are a little bit harder to achieve maybe right now than normally. Um, but you know, we have to, you know, let's focus on continuous improvement. Right. And if we get back to the supply chain kind of ironing itself out, then these are probably some good practices that we can save ourselves a few bloody noses and black eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and then you brought up the diesel world, Chuck, and I'm glad you did because, and I'm going to go kind of off-road diesel here, Um, and I'll say a lot of our shops probably don't do any kind of assembly work. They'll do all the machine work, but they won't do probably the assembly work. As you mentioned, it's just so expensive to cover something like that. Like, if you were to build one of those big off-road piece of equipment engines uh, and had a failure and needed to warranty it, it could it could literally put a guy out of business just from the cost of covering the warranty uh, and all that stuff, you know, because if that thing's not moving, it's not making no money. Right. Yeah. Some of that stuff's hundreds of thousands of dollars. Right. And that's where I think a lot of those, a lot of our shops or a machine shop in general, uh, probably will just do the machine work on it and then you guys assemble it and and do it that way. So. Yeah, the, we've seen so many shakeups in in the industry that in models. You know, I think I've gone out and couple done a couple of custom trainings and helped set up some 
equipment and head shops where it was maybe a fuel and fuel and air shop, but they get so many requests for cylinder heads and they've been doing head installs with fuel systems and there's just so many models. So, you know, hopefully uh, we bring up some points that are valuable to your particular model. Um, again, you know, uh, if you can take any bits and pieces and, and add them and improve your processes or protect yourself, I mean, that's why we exist. This trade association mm -hmm. uh, exists to provide people with technical information to uh, help them not make mistakes or you know, protect them and their customer. The customer doesn't want to be in pain either. So it's no. You know. <laughs> and I think um, that's where you're on that side of it, on the diesel side of it, a lot of that stuff, that's where you're seeing a lot of the. Um, Guys will buy those engines as complete drop-ins. You know, you put it in, you bolt it in, you plug up a couple lines, and boom, you're running. So Yeah. Yeah, it's livelihood. I mean, we can rent a car to get us back and forth to work much easier than we can go rent a functional truck that's stressed out with all of your tools. And if you got a mini <laughs> exactly. crane or something like that, you, you just don't run down to Enterprise and grab one of those, right? Uh, no. So. <laughs> <clears throat> Not that I've seen up here anyway. <laughs> well, actually, on that, you know, the parts subject, um, as, as a customer, when you buy engine parts, you understand the frustrations of filing a warranty claim uh, on a individual little part. And it's usually because they want, a, they want more information. You know, how did you... How did you qualify that that's a defect? And we did a podcast on that before. And, mm -hmm. but it, you know, it's, it's good to kind of touch base on that again. Um, if the feature that you're, you're looking at, if you can't measure it in a manner that um, would be customary to the industry or to that particular part. Okay. So if, if I'm going to say, Hey, you're, your valve stem is not round, you know, and I'm trying to measure cylinders, you know, Hey, this has bad cylindricity. Well, the only thing that you can measure with a micrometer is, you know, distance A to B two point contact. So I can have a valve stem that measures a particular diameter, but it doesn't mean that it's truly round. Maybe it's got chatter or something like that. And you see some weird wear characteristic, and you think that's why maybe is consuming oil or maybe why the guide wiped out quicker or something of that nature. I wasn't getting rid of the heat cause I had no contactors. And, uh, so just if you want to measure that, then you need to really think about how should I measure it? Put it in V box and then put an indicator on it and say, Oh, okay. Well, that thing is the farthest thing in the world from being a cylinder shape. You know, again, I can measure the highest points and, it gives me a diameter that met that spec. So you also want the same from people bringing you work. If, you know, the guy says, well, your head gasket blew again. And I, uh, I think that your, your work was poor. And then they're checking flatness with a four foot long, you know, level. Um, it's about, you really should have, the right type of tooling to to qualify the work in your shop and they do if they're going to if they're going to try to hold you accountable to something being warped or out of flat um i think we see this with engine blocks um the head goes to the machine shop somebody's taking like the rowlock disc and they grind around on the deck surface of a block and then they have the same head gasket failure again and then you go to the machine or you from the machine shop, you go to the auto repair shop and you find out that the block's not flat because they have no good way of qualifying it. And they don't believe that a row lock disc can make a block out of flat or something like that. So um, it's a situation where sometimes we've got to educate them on what the best method is to to qualify a part. And usually that's what happens with us when we're talking to a part supplier about, you know, 
how did you know how to qualify a lifter before somebody properly shared with you how they manufacture a lifter um, in creating, you know, the convex on the bottom. But uh, again, like someone sent me a picture not too awful long ago. And that's why I use that as an example where they had like a, a four foot level on the block and they had a flashlight behind it. And they were like, you know, um, what's flat? I don't see any light under it. You know, and, and we're using certified straight edges and a thousand and a half feeler gauge to qualify something. But again, here they are. They're bringing the head back to you again, saying, well, the head gasket still leaks. So <laughs> that was a, <laughs> a real example that happened pretty recently. Oh, Chuck, we need to write a book when we're done, when we retire. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, probably one of the other things, you know, you, you'll get some gasket leaks or oil leaks uh, in these particular engines that you've rebuilt. And um, you need to make sure that, uh, like, like we got here in our notes, just push to use a die penetrant to make sure that those are leaks coming from the engine per se. Obviously, if it's an oil leak, it, it probably is, but you need to figure out where it's coming from. And that's where those die penetrants are good on stuff like that. Um, and you need to make sure that your job is profitable, but you need to make sure it's done right. You know, that's that's probably the other thing that I would say is just make sure that you're doing everything on your end to make sure that there's no issues with the engine. Right. Right. You know, again, asking, asking the questions where you have to have very specific answers. Um, it, you know, if they're putting on the parts, uh, you know, if you, if you are the engine builder, um, sometimes you need to get some of the parts back, uh, to verify that, Hey, it is what you put on. You know, I'm not trying to say anybody's out there is shady in particular, but hey, if people are trying to fill the gap, because again, warranty's painful to everybody, right? So, hmm, I misdiagnosed this. I yanked a rear seal out, and you know, it was actually an intake gasket. Um, I got rid of some stuff on, and then you end up with somebody else's parts on there. You never put it on and but they want you to pay for some improper document or diagnostics um again you don't like to believe that kind of stuff happens but it's real i mean the people mm -hmm. that are listening here they know that that stuff you know i mean um that's the reality of it hey i've got i've got to cover this job somehow and so you know cya you know protect yourself and if it means asking for stuff that they don't want to give you back then that might be your your deal right there. Hey, if you can't provide me the parts I supposedly installed, then I think we're done. Right. So right. Speaking of parts, Chuck, um, you've been in that production world, lived it. If there was a warranty claim, how long is that process? Because Obviously, you're looking to see, A, did we make a mistake? B, was it a part that failed <clears throat> from the manufacturing side? And if you have to deal with the parts manufacturer, how long normally or how long of a process is that? Well, it, and, and I know it's not a, a given. You know, there's no nothing set in stone. But just trying to figure out, are we talking a month? Are we talking a couple weeks? So typically the like the first engine replacement happens really fast customers got a a failure uh the installation time was kind of very impactful too hey if the guy just installed it he's got a major he's got this failure i mean you swap this stuff out and you get him back on the road as quick as possible then you get the engine back you do the analysis if you find there's something wrong with the part dealing with a vendor um whether he gets paid for the additional stuff, you know, like fluids and was there a car rental involved and so forth, the payment part of it, it might take a month, 45 days or something, depending on how much has to come out. But they're going to get that guy back on the road as quick as possible. Now, if you have kind of repeat failures, 
then you start to have to do, okay, there's some diagnostics on the other end. Why are they having the failure when, you know, it's only happening in this part of the country? Because, you know, shop owners talk to each other. Oh, I've noticed this mm-hmm. issue. And so, so is it, is it geographic? Is it, um, is it a situation where, you know, cause like in the South when they don't, they don't put coolant in engines cause it doesn't get cold. Except here last couple of years, we've had major freezes <laughs> down South, but, but anyway, um, you know, you would have stuff that tends to clog up and leak or whatever. So again, if it's, if it gets to be a repeat scenario, that's going to stretch things out. Cause I got to get, I got to figure out what's causing this. I can't just keep shipping engines to this this customer um if it's a a problematic issue with a particular part and it's causing a rash of issues then sometimes you got to get that shaken out so yeah it's hard to say i mean typically they want to have stuff taken care of in like 14 days um okay about 10 working days really but again you start running into circumstances that you need more information evidence whatever the case may be it can drag that stuff out yeah, just curious more than anything, just wondering how that process worked and getting that engine back and tearing it apart and looking at it and this and that. But obviously your main thing is to get the customer going as quickly as possible. Right, right. So, um, again, because all of those things, they reflect on your profile, right? I mean, mm-hmm. again, like it or not, it's so easy to put something out there today yeah, if I buy from this company, um, I'm going to be at risk at shutting my business down because, you know, they're selling me junk and then they don't respond to their claims. You know, if there is a problem, they just, they try to brush them under the rug. Well, again, like that, you know, the first hundred thousand mile car warranty deal, you're going to figure, figure it out or you're going to go away. <laughs> so, you know, I, th- I think, um, you know, a lot of these points, um, are about the the warranty itself, um, the failed parts and whatnot. And sometimes we don't, I mean, whether it doesn't have to be warranty is how I'm going to approach this next subject is what does it do? What does warranty do to your day-to-day production? Um, and, and I've talked, you know, in custom training, I go in the shops and again, for 30 plus years of my life have looked at this. We're really good at fixing stuff. That's why we do what we do, right? I know I know how to fix worn valve guides and cracked heads. And I can fix all of this stuff. So when I make a mistake in my process, eh, no big deal. You know, I the whole measure twice, cut once, maybe we didn't do that. So we have to we have to go and sleeve a hole because we overhomed or overboard and because we can fix this stuff, we don't count that as time lost and the same is true with warranties. So if I have warranties, I'm having to deal with instead of my day-to-day production, then that's that whole factory in a factory scenario that I'm redoing things that I shouldn't really be messing with. But I fix my processes and they were going through first pass yield. Again, we know Murphy exists. We got to buy parts. We have to rely on outside companies and so forth. So the things you control, make sure you have them under control. Right. And I, we just got to look at that of, okay, so I get the engine on the dyno and what the heck? Oh, I got a head gasket up on, on it upside down and it's act, you know, coolant flow is not right. And so how much did that cost you? Well, time material. So I, I quoted this engine based on, I was going to use two head gaskets, but I used three and I was going to use a set of bolts. Now I use a set and a half of bolts. So, you know, think about what it costs you. And usually when it's a warranty situation, that guy's really pissed and he wants his stuff back. So what do you do to that guy? Okay, he's he was a paying customer. He paid you once. So you're going to help move him to the top of the priority list and get his stuff back to him, rightfully so. But now you go deeper in the hole. I'm 
giving it any priority. I'm pushing other stuff behind. I'm missing deadlines and I'm losing money on this deal. So, you know, for every action, there's a reaction, right? And again, that, you know, you can't speak about cause and effect often enough. Everything you should look at it with that kind of lens, cause and effect, cause and effect. So um, if you would look at, if you would highlight those as they're coming through and try to make sure that you don't see them. And, and again, it goes back to, uh, you know, as I said earlier, the whole dumb luck thing. Sometimes you don't, you don't see the problem because you don't understand the problem. So how is that my problem? Um, and then you figure out, okay, this is, this is what really caused that. And I have seen that before. Um, just always look at things with a, through a lens that can I be involved in this? Is it really my problem or how can I make it go away? Cause even if it's at the customer level, it ultimately you end up being wrapped up in that problem anyway, whether it's just them bad mouthing you or harassing you to make it go away or whatever. Um, yeah. If, if life was easy, um, we wouldn't be having podcasts and all kinds of stuff. Would we? You know? <laughs> so, well, and the other thing is along those same lines is, you know, if it is a procedural thing in the shop that's, that caused the issue, make sure your employees know what that cost, this warranty is costing the business. You know, like you say, you know, the production times and all that stuff, but make sure that your employees are aware of what, what this impact has uh, financially on the business as well. Hopefully they'll understand and, and take a new role or take a different view of instead of it's just a job, I'm walking in here at eight o'clock, I'm leaving at five o'clock and I'm just here as, as a robot doing my job. Hopefully they'll look at it and go, man, this is our livelihood. We need to, we need to make sure this is done right. Yeah. You know, for the folks that are listening that maybe do work in a, in a bigger operation. Um, and I've had this conversation with young folks in the past and they're like, well, well, I don't care. They get the, you know, the fat guy in the corner getting rich and, you know, and, and I'm out here busting my back and okay. You came here looking for a job to improve your life, maybe to raise your family or whatever, whether you like the guy in the corner or not, do the best that you can do while you're there. I mean, it's, you know, when I was in the Marine Corps, they always use that intestinal fortitude, intestinal fortitude. You need to fill it down deep. It's, you know, don't do it for everybody else. I mean, you need to be a part of a team, but if you're not satisfying yourself first, then you're not going to satisfy anybody else. Right. Cause right. It, you can't control that. It leaches into everything in your life. If you're, you know, an old curmudgeon or something, everybody knows you are. And then if you're lazy and, and not a team player, it always comes to head. So, you know, when you complain about the guy who's getting fat and happy because he owns the place or whatever, I mean, you don't know his strings and stresses and risks. He's the guy that took all the risk. I've always said that about, you know, I'm not the, the guy that's going to uh, take those huge insurmountable to me risks. You know, it's kind of that um, we got a society that wants – uh, prime rib reward for ramen noodle effort. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just, just take a look at yourself. Do you, where do you want to be? I may not want right. to be ramen noodles, but I may not want to be prime rib. So, you know, a bologna sandwich or something, but find your place. But just because somebody has something, you know, don't sabotage them because if you're working somewhere, um, that's providing your livelihood too. And if you find an opportunity to make it better and you move on somewhere else, then do that, but don't sabotage. And sometimes, you know, you got to question yourself about when we just let things go. No, it's close to spec. You know, what are we really saying? <clears throat> well, Chuck, hopefully we've kind of enlightened people on, uh, engine warranties. Um, we didn't muddy the waters any more than they already were. Hopefully we've got them a little clearer, but Hey, you never know. <laughs> <laughs> well, and if, and, and if you like what, you know, Steve and I have to say on these podcasts and stuff, I would definitely would like to have the feedback on that. Um, actually, 
Steve, before we close out here, uh, what about our upcoming tech and skills regional in North Carolina coming up? Yep. We have uh, Liberty Engine Parts is going to have a tech and skills regional conference on February 25th, which I believe is a Saturday at their Charlotte, North Carolina location. And the speakers for that event, we're going to have Trey McFarland from Race Winning Brands talking about choosing the correct performance connecting rod. And then we got Lake Speed Jr. who is going to be there as well from Total Seal Piston Rings. And if you've heard Lake talk, he's obviously very good, very knowledgeable. He is talking about motor oil is the gasket in your cylinders. And then from Melling, we got Cale Riesinger and Tim Foster, who are going to talk about valve springs and oil pump selections. And then to round out the day, we got Dan Bagley from Molly Aftermarket, who is going to be talking about engine bearing failures. So if you're in the area or... Uh, within driving distance or even flying. If you'd like to attend that, you can get some more information on our website about that. Uh, but definitely, it's a good lineup for speakers. Uh, a lot of good information come out of these. Not so much just the technical information from the speakers, but we also have tabletop exhibitors where you can visit with, um, kind of like a, a mini show, I guess, if you want to call it. But it's more of a one-day conference where guys can get and talk to those vendors one-on-one as well as networking with other machine shops. That's probably one of the biggest things I hear about these conferences that we have is, man, I'm glad I went. I got to network with people and do this and that. So if you are if you got some time uh, on, a, on a Saturday in February, uh, February 25th, and you're in the north like we are, uh, I'm going to be going to that because I want to get out of the cold. <laughs> <laughs> You know, hey Steve, I think uh, one thing about the the table top tabletops um, probably don't hit on often enough. So we have a fair number of shops that use warehouse distribution stuff. Of course, Liberty, mm-hmm. right? So when you go to this, you get to see face to face that guy who is the supplier of the parts right. that you're getting from that warehouse, and your warehouse is supporting that. They're all you know, he wants all of his folks there to support his effort. So it's a good time to get, you know, face to face and ask the questions that uh, maybe sometimes can't get answered at the warehouse level um, or, you know, they've got to go through several layers of it. So um, that's a good way to just take advantage of, of these tech and skills regionals. Again, there's good, great presentations. But as you mentioned, these tabletops can be um, great opportunities to build relationships. Yeah, and there's there's a couple other ones scheduled throughout the year. Uh, we got March, April, uh, uh, January, February, March, April, and then October, I believe. Um, so as we proceed on our, our recordings of these podcasts, we'll definitely get into some of the other ones. But we try to do four or five a year uh, and base them throughout the United States where everybody has a chance to come uh, and partake in those because they're definitely, we believe, are good information. So. All right, Chuck. Well, that uh, brings us in uh, closing here to another episode of the podcast, uh, right about that hour mark, which is good. We're back at it again. So (laughs) it's good to be back. It's good to uh, get these done and uh, educate our industry a little bit. If if nothing else, it just gives them our perspective of of what we think about these topics that we discuss. And our next topic here in February, we are going to be talking about, what are we talking about, Chuck? Uh, We're going to talk about engine assembly and the importance of organization, you know, have a plan. Um, I I jokingly use this analogy often. If you uh, were dropped in the woods and you had a map, but it didn't have any legend on it, and I don't know which way north is, you can be headed the wrong direction pretty quick. So have yourself a good plan, know which way is north and, uh, (laughs) you know, everything will come together better. Um, you know, some of us are better at it than others and practice makes perfect. Yeah. It'll be a good episode. Uh, it's good to kind of enlighten people on just things you need to check, things you need to look for, that type of thing during engine assembly. So it's looking forward to it. Um, can't wait to do it. And that'll be our February uh, podcast. And if you'd like to, like Chuck stated earlier, you know, we'd like to hear some feedback from you. 
If you like what you're hearing or have any suggestions, please, please, please email us at eppodcast at aera.org. We're always looking for topics to talk about. Uh, We've got a good list, but hey, if you've got something that you want us to talk about, feel free to send it to us. We'll be happy to review it and do a little research and hopefully make that as a good topic of discussion on the podcast. Well, Chuck, uh, it's coming to a close here. So it's January here in Chicago. All I can say is stay warm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's hard to find that place this year. Yeah.